Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It's my pleasure to welcome Bobby Lee back to the podcast. Welcome, Bobby Lee. It's good to be here. So, Bobby Lee, for those that may not be familiar with you, you are a reliability engineer with Iridicio. You -hmm. spend quite a bit of time working on FMEAs, equipment maintenance plans, RCAs, and various other reliability problems that we have going on. Although super brief, can you give us a little bit to your background? Yeah, so I've spent about 10 years in maintenance, uh, probably more like nine and six of those years was as a maintenance technician, and then a couple of those years were as a reliability engineer. So I did some training as a reliability to become a reliability engineer, and here I am. So, All right, perfect. So what I wanted to kind of chat today about is FMEAs, and really from an FMEA perspective, you know, we facilitate FMEAs, we coach some of our clients on how to facilitate FMEAs, and there's just a lot of different things going on with them that either makes them successful or, you know, leaves some room for opportunity, if you will. What are some of the things you see in going on with FMEAs or some of the things you've learned as you've done more and more of them that we really got to pay attention about too? Well, as everybody knows, FMEAs is everybody's favorite thing to do. There's nothing like getting in a room and talking about how components fail over and over again. So it's it's interesting to try to make it interesting, right? To keep people engaged and to keep people interacting with you while you're up there talking about these components and the different functions and functional failures and things of that nature. So whenever you can start keeping people engaged, that's when FMEA start to become interesting and fun. Because with engagement, then they start to see the importance of it, the value, and they actually get excited about it. All right. So how do we get that engagement then? I think, you know, it comes down to a couple of things. I think, you know, we got to look at how is the facilitator facilitating their techniques, their skill. You know, do we have the right people in the room? Because if we have a, the wrong people in the room, that will definitely destroy some of the engagement. And then we got to worry about how deep is too deep for the FMEA. Are we down to each individual bolt and rivet? Or are we looking more at maintainable items or so on and so forth? So I think those are the main three things that we look for for driving that engagement. Do you see anything else or is those the three things that really drive it? I think those are the three things that really drive it. And facilitation techniques is something that I've come to realize that people do differently. Uh, You know, they they say there's more more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to facilitate an FMEA. Not that any one of them is wrong, but there are better ways to facilitate in order to keep people engaged. For example, the sticky note process. Having people write down components on sticky notes, it helps me. It saves me time because, first off, I'm a terrible speller. So I always tell them spelling doesn't count, so they don't have to worry about spelling. 
And if I misspell something, it's not that bad. But whenever they're writing things down and they see it go up there, you know, then they're able to have a visual instead of just you working on a spreadsheet. Some people do that. It works, but I find more engagement when you actually have people actively writing and then also writing down failures as well helps. I find the I find the same thing. If you're what I typically see, if someone's facilitating, then they're they're facilitating and entering the data on Excel. It's like they ask questions and everyone has to pause for a minute. Then they ask a couple of questions, everyone has to pause for a minute, and you, you don't keep the momentum up. And then you end up with end up in what I typically see is people playing with the formatting of the Excel template and some other stuff, and you know you can look around the room and everyone instantly grabs their phone and starts checking email or scrolls Facebook or something else because they're just zoned out, no interest in what's going on when that yeah. happens. Yeah, and also from a facilitation standpoint, you got to watch the ones that like to get off on rabbit trails, the ones that like to chase failures and problems and figure out why those problems even happened, right? You got to keep them on track for an FMEA and not a root cause analysis to distinguish the difference. Now, sometimes you have to let people go down those rabbit trails, but you always got to know how to bring them back. And working with teenagers has helped me be able to wrangle people and get them back on track a little bit easier and and handling that situation. Absolutely. Because sometimes, you know, it's this thing that they saw occur and it stands out because it was really painful at that point or they got in trouble for it or something. And they want to just keep going and going and figure out what caused it, how do we prevent this from again. And it's interesting. You see that with from that aspect. But I also see people get hung up on some of the corrective actions or preventative actions coming out. Oh, for sure. And too, with that, one thing that helps facilitate the people that, that like to chase rabbit trails is to create something we call a parking lot. Just to have a, a little posted note over to the side that says parking lot. And anytime they get off on those rabbit trails, say, oh, well, that would be a good RCA event. Let's make a note of that. Let's put that in the parking lots. So what that does is it makes that person feel heard and seen and it recognizes that they see the problem, right? And we're gonna to try to address that when we can. Same with preventative tasks. There's gonna be arguments based off those preventative, preventative maintenance tasks that we can do, but overall, you're, you're the facilitator. And if you know the machine, you know the predictive equipment, you know what's gonna work best. And sometimes it's just, how do we navigate those conversations? It's important to hear them out and to see where they're coming from, but also, you have to stay on task in order to complete the job at hand. Yeah. And especially too, if it's a fairly reactive organization that's heavily involved in time-based maintenance and very little predictive preventative type stuff. Um, it's hard to get them to realize you don't have to rebuild this thing every three months, every six months, every year. You know, we can mm -hmm. monitor and just replace when we need to. And trying to get that conveyed across at times can be difficult. Right. Yeah, I remember there was one FMEA that I was facilitating, and it was back when I was a RE with another company. And this guy had a story for almost every failure. And so I pretty much had to listen to a couple of them, and finally, I was like, okay, I get it. You, you've seen it, you've experienced it. I hear your pain, but we've got to move on. We don't have time. This isn't story time, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And that's like you said, so the facilitation techniques is, you know, making sure we keep people engaged, being able to bring them back from their little rabbit trails. Um, 
knowing when to allow people to go down some of those rabbit trails, when to bring them back, you know, all those different pieces come together for facilitation. Have you seen anything that people do really wrong for facilitation? I don't know if I would say really wrong, but sometimes you'll have people that will just stub up on you. And, and what I mean by that is they'll say, we don't see the value of this FMEA. We don't understand the output of this. This will never work here. This is a waste of time because we don't dive down into these components. So in those moments, when you deal with someone like that, it's important to have that side conversation of, hey, I realize that you don't see the value in this, but trust me and trust the process. This is what we do. This is the reason why we're doing it, but I need your help in order to facilitate this because sometimes those people might be your subject matter expert and you can't do it without them. So they have to see the value in the failure mode and effect analysis and the outcome of that. So the outcome of a failure mode and effect analysis can be failure codes for a CMMS system, equipment maintenance plan. It can help you direct your RCA events. There's a lot of value in an FMEA if you take time to do it the right way. But if you have those people that stub up on you, you have to backtrack a little bit in order to get them on track. Yeah, that you definitely have to do that and help show the value, showcase the value. And the other piece with that too is, is maybe they see the value, but they've done this two or three times and nothing actually changes or gets implemented. So they see it as a giant waste of time. Correct. Yeah. And I think that's where it's important as a facilitator to have that follow through, you know, to have the follow up actions right there in front of them. When something gets achieved, we celebrate it. We celebrate those achievements. We celebrate that we completed something off of that FMEA in order to make their system better. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the other part with that, when we go down those rabbit trails or, you know, to your point where people don't see the value, one of the things I see often is, how deep those FMEAs go. So whether it's to the individual component, maintainable item, subsystem, all these other variations that you can have, how deep is too deep? Or how high is too high? Because it could go either way. Yeah, I think whenever it comes to how deep is too deep, it depends on the organization. Some people's maintenance is more advanced than others. In other words, their, their program is just more advanced. They have more failure codes. They're able to track data a little bit better. So in those cases, you can dive down a little bit more to why the sprocket failed and how many times it failed and what we're going to do to address that problem. But for some companies, they don't track that. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to talk about the ways they see that sprocket fail. And we're going to stop there. Sometimes there's no need to go into bolts and stuff because they, they can't even track why a motor failed. So why would we ask them to start tracking bolts and stuff too? I think, you know, people get overwhelmed when they start looking at a system. They're like, oh my gosh, how are we going to eat this elephant? Well, you eat it one bite at a time. And you can get start at a high level, but let's capture all the maintainable components. I think that's the best way to capture an FMEA because then you're saying, this is how we're going to maintain this main component here. And we're not going to dive down into the nuts and bolts yet because honestly, we're not mature enough in that stage yet. So with that maintainable item, I mean, is it like gearbox, motor, that level of detail that we're talking about or are we diving? Yeah, so maintainable components, I think of a motor, gearbox, uh, sprockets, 
chains, chain guides, things like that, that are visual and you can see, but we can also do predictive technologies on things that might need to be lubricated, things that we can measure and get true quantitative PM task for instead of looking at it and saying, you know, sprockets, we can, we could probably say we need to change a sprocket every year. If we have the data to support that, some places don't have that. Yep. Yeah. I see people wanting to get into those itty bitty details, you know, the nuts, bolts, washers, instead of just the gearbox itself. Now, when we're talking about a gearbox from a maintainable item perspective, it's not like we're saying gearbox fails and that's it. We're saying, you know, bearing failure due to improper lubrication, bearing failure due to misalignment. We're still calling out the specific failure modes for that gearbox, but we're not calling out each and every piece within that gearbox. Right, yeah, and and two, you'll you'll start to capture that stuff when you whenever you look at it. The first time I ever facilitated FMEA, the people were so overwhelmed by the task because we were trying to go off of drawings, we were trying to go off of the hierarchy, and honestly, we decided that it was better just to physically go walk down the equipment, see what physically is there, and cover those components. Because when you whenever you get into drawings. Then that's when you start getting into all this stuff that might not even be there. Some people don't update their drawings the way that they should. They'll make changes and there'll be all these old files in there along with the new updated ones. So then it's, well, which one's updated? Well, the best way to find out is just walk out there, do a walk down to the machine, write down what's there, and then go back and start doing your FMEA. You will capture, I'd say, 90% of the components when you do that. And if you have a good hierarchy, then you're going to check that hierarchy against what you just did your walk down with. Use your FMEA as like a check, a check and balance kind of deal. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out iridicio.com for a free copy of their ebook, A Smarter Way of Preventative Maintenance. This ebook will allow you to review your current maintenance program and eliminate the non-value-added work you're doing, which is most likely causing you more downtime than it is preventing. www.iridicio.com yeah, and if you're doing that, like you said, walk down, call out the, the major components, that type of thing, you can start to build a pretty good function block diagram when you do that. Okay, here's this part of the machine, an in-feed, an out-feed, here's this, here's that, and use that to build your function block diagrams, which then you really, I think that also goes to how deep is too deep. If we identify all the primary functions of the overall piece of equipment, what each one of those subsystems do with their functions that support the overall piece of equipment. We're kind of limiting how wide or how deep this FMEA is going to go because if, if this failure doesn't impact this subsystem, which doesn't impact the overall equipment function, then we don't care because the equipment will still run. Yeah, and also we don't need to dive in to why bolts fail, right? This isn't a spaceship going to NASA listening, you might be working on spaceships, and if you do, you need to cover bolts, all right? I'm just I'm not saying we don't need to cover that. But, or airplanes, right? Do that. Cover bolts, because it's important. My life is in your hands whenever I'm flying, and I would really appreciate if you covered those bolts. So in some cases, as you can see, it's important to cover that. But in other cases, like a regular manufacturing facility, let's say if they make tires, why do we need to cover a bolt on a motor? Yep. Yeah, it the operating context is important with how deep is too deep, right? If we don't, we're not, 
I always joke around that, you know, we're putting something in a bottle or you know, we're putting something in a package or whatever it is. We're not building nuclear reactors here. <laughs> you know, right. th- there's a big difference in the consequences if something fails, if, you know, if something doesn't go in a package versus a nuclear reactor or an airplane or anything for that nature, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think that's the other piece is they got to understand the operating context and that's going to help them decide how deep they go. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Getting a good function statement is going to drive your FMEA so much. So a good function statement would be capturing, let's say if you have to do so many per minute, capturing that number, capturing the operating temperatures that, that you need to operate at, cap, capture the cooling temperatures. All of that should be in your function statement because then you're whenever you start breaking down into subsystems, you're going to capture those function statements as well, but it's going to support your main function. Yep. And that, I think that's key. And I don't see enough people doing that. They have their high level function statement, you know, X amount of widgets per minute. Then they have that same function statement for their subsystems. Well, the subsystems aren't really doing that. The subsystems are doing something else to support that primary function of the asset. And, you know, they don't take the time to differentiate from those. So every failure for every one of those subsystems is vital now because Mm -hmm. they don't know what it's actually supposed to do. Yeah, like let's use a box machine, for example, right? So a box machine's job is to form box within a certain spec at 20 boxes per minute, just throwing a number out there. Well, then you have your infix system. Well, what's its job? Its job is to supply the boxes so it can form X amount of boxes within a minute, yep. right? So you, you see that functions start to change, but that function is a supporting function of the main function. I use function a lot there, but yeah, I, get what I'm, saying. I'm following you. I'm following it's a supporting you. function of the main function. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we ought to worry about how deep is too deep. And I think it differs for every organization based on their, their tolerance for risk, how mature they are, all these different factors. And then, you know, the last thing that also influences how deep is too deep is do we have the right people in the room? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so whenever I think about the right people in the room, I want the people who have to deal with that machine on a daily basis, right? I want I want the operators in the room. I want the maintenance mechanics, the technicians, an engineer if they're available. Those are the ones that I want. And the main reasons why you want an operator is because they're the frontline defense. They're right there. They respond to things that maintenance doesn't even know about because if you've got a good operator, they'll fix probably 50% of the things that they can. But when that happens, we don't capture that in Maximo or Maximo or CMMS system sometimes, right? We, we just don't capture that because they've already taken care of the problem and they just go, go about the day, which is fine. But also that's where those death by a thousand cuts come in. What is driving the operators crazy that we need to address is actually going to affect our overall throughput. And we're going to have more uptime on that machine because we're able to take care of those little issues that operators see every day. Right. Absolutely. So it can't just be a maintenance person. It can't just be an RE doing this by themselves. We need the operational people in the room, operators preferably, the ones who deal with it day in, day out, like you said. We need the maintenance mechanic who deals with it. Maybe the controls Mm -hmm. guy. Um, if If this piece of equipment has a huge impact on quality, might need a quality person in there for a period of time. Maybe not the whole time, but at least a period of time. 
And, you know, it's got to be that cross-functional team, but we can't let that team get too big either, I find. If we start getting more than, you know, six, seven people in the room, it really slows down the process. Yeah, you can have too many people. So there's a saying, we got too many hands in the pot, right? And so whenever we get too many hands in the pot, everybody's got their own way of doing it. And then you're going to have, honestly, arguments break out. Oh, no, that never happens. Or, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. I don't, whatever, right? You're going to have arguments when you have that many people in the room. So it is important to keep it small. I find that around four people seems to be a good number. Um, You can manage six. But four seems to work pretty good because you don't have that many different opinions coming in and they're able to work together. Another facilitation technique that I want to kind of throw out there is provide donuts at least once because you're asking them to sit in a room and talk about these components. The least thing you can do as a facilitator is just provide donuts. It makes everybody happy. Yeah, coffee, donuts, it makes a huge, huge difference. The other thing too I find is, you know, we got – now we got some of the right functions. We got the right number of people. The people themselves, we got to have people that are willing to share. Yeah. So it, if we're using like the sticky note technique, people that may not want to speak up in front of a group, they may share that way. Or, mm-hmm. you know, they might not like to write, so they'll speak but not write. So then we have to, you know, flex our fil- fil- facilitation techniques based on how our audiences want to engage, but we need to have people that are willing to engage. Right. Yeah. And sometimes even the quiet ones, I'll cold call on you. Like if you're sitting there and you don't say anything, I'll, I'll straight up ask you what you think in front of everybody and try. And that's not to call you out, but it's because you're there for a reason. People have trust in you and see you as a valued team member. So let's add value. Let's hear your thoughts. Cause a lot of times what you'll find is those quiet people, they have a lot of wisdom and they'll start saying stuff. And you're like, oh, wow. Okay. Did you guys know that? And everybody in the room's like, no, we had no idea. Right. Well, then you start making notes and stuff of that as well. And it is harder to navigate whenever you have those quiet people in the room. But when they start to see their value and that they are valued, they will start to speak up more. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes just getting them comfortable with what's going on, the people in the room, because, you know, they may not work with those other people often so they're trying to feel them out too at the same time there's there's lots going on when you're facilitating these fmeas oh yeah it's it's a lot of moving pieces <laughs> so you know i got a couple things that i like to do before i do an fmea but wondering do you have any tricks or tips you want to you, you typically walk through before we you're facilitating an fmea um the Bre- kind breathing of exercises for- a lot of breathing breathing exercises <laughs> um Honestly, man, it's about getting your supplies ready, getting the room set up. You know, if you can get in there before everybody else and start getting that stuff done, it helps just move things along. And then also being familiar with the asset before you start talking about it. I have done FMEAs that I'm not familiar with on the machine, which is okay. So then it's just knowing what questions to ask. That's a huge part of FMEA, asking the right questions, getting them to dig deeper, Pulling from your own experience, I have maintenance experience, so it's easy for me to sit there and say, oh, well, I've seen components spelled this way, this way, and this way. Do you guys ever see that? And then sometimes that'll spark. I'm like, oh, yeah, we see that all the time. Or, no, that hardly ever happens here because it's just a different in the way they manufacture things. So asking the right questions, 
being familiar with the asset, reviewing the hierarchy before you go in, if you have that available, all of those are very valuable steps that will help you be successful when it comes to facilitation. Yeah, I agree with all those. The other thing, too, is walk the asset down as a group. Say, this is how it works. This feeds into this. This operates this way, that sort of thing, because everyone may know what it does, but they may not understand how it works. So by walking through that, I find it makes a big difference in comfort with having a conversation about it. I did a uh, FMEA for one of our clients, and we were sitting there talking about this this machine, and we all had quite a question. And I love it. One of the king's like, well, heck, let's just go look at it. You know, we had already done a walk down. That doesn't mean you can't go back out there and look at it. So we all got up. We went out there and looked at it. We got our answer and we came back. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. Having to take that break to say, you know, well, we don't remember. Let's walk back out there and look at it. Yep. If you're able to do that. That makes a huge difference. So if you're near near the asset, can you go look at it? That makes a big, big difference. A little difficult if we're doing a design FMEA when then we're stuck with either 3D models or drawings. But if we can get out there and look at it, that makes a huge difference for sure. Yeah. And even if you if there's room to do an FMEA right there at the asset, that can be very beneficial because you're right there. They can get their hands on it. They can see it. And you don't have to try to pull from pictures or pull from people's memory. They can do it right there. Now, sometimes it's hard to do that because you don't have a whiteboard that you can move around. They do make flip charts and you can get a, uh, what they call those easels or whatever and put your flip chart on that and sit there and do it that way. Yep. There's, so there's lots of ways to do an FMEA, but we just got to make sure, you know, we got the right facilitation techniques for how deep is too deep. One of the things I wanted, I usually like to do is, you know, chat with the team, with the sponsor or whoever's, you know, having this project done and understand what do they want it for? Is it failure codes? Is it to come up with an EMP? Is it, you know, all encompassing that helps level set. How deep uh, do they expect it to be? And then, you know, the right people in the room, sometimes you're lucky and you get the right people in the room and sometimes you're not as lucky and it's a little more difficult. Um, but those are the three things that you kind of want to focus on for delivering an FMEA. Yeah. And when you don't get the right people in the room, sometimes you're there to facilitate a failure mode and effect analysis anyways. So you got to make it work. So what do you do in those situations? Well, you rely on your own experience and you try to question them and make sure you're going in the right direction. A lot of times, even the ones that might not necessarily be the right ones in the room will help you get the right components down and check that hierarchy. So they can at least do that. And once you do that, you can start pulling from your own experience and ask them questions if they see that. And it's it, it's a means to an end, but you you get there. Absolutely. All right. Well, Bobby Lee, I think we've beat FMEAs to death so far. I don't know if we need to continue on, but we definitely hopefully provided some insight to our listeners on, you know, how do we better facilitate FMEAs? How do we get FMEAs to be a little more effective, maybe a little more um, or less resource intensive, if you will, because we're, we're executing them a little quicker. But if people want to find out more, where can they reach out to you at? How do they find learn more so if you want to reach out to me directly you can email me at rgillum at iridicio.com i would be more than happy to answer any questions that you guys might have a great book to read is failure modes the failure codes 
kind of helps you see how to how to get there. You know, paints a good picture of that. All right, excellent. I'll make sure to put links to that in the show notes. I definitely appreciate it. Well, Bobby Lee, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yes, sir. Have a good day. I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the Reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.